Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Tosh Robinson. And Genevieve Kosky. Scott Tobias is not here this week. Scott, we miss you. We really do. Yeah. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're looking at two movies focusing on The Batman, <laughs> the billionaire playboy slash masked Avenger who has been a fixture of pop culture since its first appearance in the pages of Detective Comics back in 1939. Tasha, what can you tell us about this week's pairing? For this week's episode, we watched Batman, Tim Burton's 1989 film, which brought the superhero to the big screen for the first time since 1966, when he appeared in a quickly made feature film tied to the phenomenally popular Adam West starring TV series, a campy show that had defined the character for the general public for decades. In some respects, Burton's film was a reaction against that series, using grimness to push back against the series' lightness and humor. 28 years later, we've been through what Batman scholar and friend of the podcast Glenn Weldon has described as cycles of dark to light and back again. And with the Lego Batman movie appearing just a year after the supremely dour Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, we currently seem to be living in a moment where those cycles have started to coexist. So which is the real Batman? The pitiless persecutor of criminal scum or the punning adventurer? Or are we asking the wrong question? For our answers, we'll consider where Batman came from and where he's going. But first, let's look at Batman as he appeared at one particular moment in time, June of 1989. What are you? I'm Batman. My life is really complex. Winged freak terrorizes. Wait till they get a load of me. 
The internet didn't invent outrage. It just sped it up. Just ask Tim Burton and Michael Keaton, who had to cut through a thicket of skepticism on their way to making Batman. Burton was an animator-turned-director making his third feature, a follow-up to the funny, inventive comedies Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice. Keaton was an actor best known for comedies like Mr. Mom and Night Shift. According to a 1989 article in Empire Magazine, that's a British film magazine, Batman fans who were already skeptical about Burton's involvement inundated Warner Brothers with, quote, 50,000 letters of protest complaining that Keaton had no chin and not enough hair. He was too glib, too scrawny, simply not the right man for the job. This is notable for a couple reasons. One, people used to write letters to movie studios. (laughs) And two, by the late 80s, fans of Batman had a definite idea of what the hero should be, and he definitely should not be funny. The years before Burton's Batman had seen the release of grim, acclaimed books like Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns and Alan Moore and Brian Bolland's The Killing Joke, both of those arrived on the heels of over a decade of stories that took Batman seriously in the years after the Adam West Batman left the air. In short, fans had an idea of what kind of Batman they wanted and what they didn't want, and despite his background, Burton gave them that Batman. But he went further. Working with production designer Anton First, Burton summoned up a Gotham City out of some alternate universe where Art Deco took a really dark turn. Drawing from a script by Sam Hamm and Warren Scarn, he and Keaton delivered a Batman who was nearly as messed up on the inside as Jack Nicholson's Joker. And despite some scenes that look more visible now than ever, it worked. Batman established a tone of high stakes, high seriousness for superhero films that became a model for others to follow and alter, for good and ill. So what's it like to pay a return visit to Burton's Gotham, so many superhero movies, and so many Batman later? We'll discuss after the break. The police have got it wrong. They're looking for one product. The Joker's tainted hundreds of chemicals at the source. Then whole shipments of products would be poisoned and would all be dead. No. The poison only works when the components are mixed. Hairspray won't do it alone, but hairspray mixed with lipstick and perfume will be toxic and untraceable. How did you figure this out? I might have some trouble with that. A lot of people think you're as dangerous as the Joker. (laughs) He's psychotic. Some people say the same thing about you. What people? Well, I mean, let's face it. You're not exactly normal, are you? So, guys, my wife shared an alarming report with me, and one of her coworkers had recently shown this film to his kids who grew up on superhero movies from MCU and, and so on, modern superhero movies, and they found it old-fashioned. <laughs> I'm on record on hating the term dated a lot, but maybe it's at least worth talking about how it fits into the history of superhero movies. How, how did this look to you? What are we, 27 years later? 28 years later? Yeah. Uh, oh, boy. Almost uh, 28 years later. <laughs> let's just say 30. <laughs> how does, 30 years later, how, does, how did this look to you? It looked really, really heavily influenced to me by uh, Richard Donner's 1978 Superman, mm-hmm. just in terms of the, the emotional content, particularly the romance, which this movie really had me wondering, why do so many Batman films focus on the romance? Like, it's, it's the least interesting, like, who he's boffing at any given moment, who he's feeling feeling soft feelings for is like the least interesting part of any Batman story. And this movie goes so hard in that direction to the point where Alfred is 
practically pimping him out. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's incredible how hard Alfred is pushing for these two to get together based on a conversation and an, and like a night in the sack. And it's it's creepy, honestly. It's yeah, weird. They, there's all this all this dialogue about her being a really special person, and like you know, I like Kim Basinger in this movie just fine, but there's no, nothing really sets her up as a very special person. Yeah, it, it, she, it is. she has to do a lot of surprised screaming. Yeah. In this oh, I hated the screaming so much. <laughs> I mean, she screams every time something looks at her, and there was there's a point midway through where I was like, I should go back and track how many how often she screams. Yeah. And then like five minutes later, I was like, I don't have I don't have enough fingers. Yeah. It's just too much. Yeah, her character is this like weird cross between like a dame and a damsel, I guess. Just going back to, you asked how did it look for you on a return visit? Most of it looked really good. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the thing that we probably all agree on is that the production design of this, it's still great to go back to all these years later. But it did also look to me more like a comic book in that it was much more static than superhero movies are today. Batman moves so slow in this movie yeah. like he's much more, he's more of a, a stalking batman than than anything you know and superhero movies today are just so influenced by action and they're fast and the fighting is fast and this is not that you know there's lots of kind of really nice tableaus where you see batman kind of like lowering in the background but it, there's not a lot of like exciting fighting which is such a, a central part of uh, most superhero movies today, the more recent Batman films included. Well, it feels like part of that is that I, I, I noticed this th in the first confrontation where he's, you know, taking down the two pickpockets or muggers or whatever you want to call them. We actually see what he's doing and it looks ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Like it, I mean, it looks like a human being in a rubber suit, like doing silly things with a string. And I feel like more modern, like Batman movies in particular, just kind of turn him into like a blur of motion. Mm -hmm. Like when he drops down, you don't see him. When he pops up out of somewhere or disappears somewhere, you don't see him. When he's fighting, it's just kind of, a, as you say, a blur of motion. Because the more you see of it, the more aware you are that this is a thing that's kind of ridiculous mm -hmm. in the real world. But yeah. here it's like, here it's all on screen mm -hmm. and you have to confront like what it actually looks like. Yeah. I think so there's a limitations of the suit, frankly. Mm -hmm. I mean, just there's only yeah. so much you could, the, the suit technology has, has advanced <laughs> you, since then. You got to have the baton wings mm -hmm. uh, out, you know, whenever he jumps, that impractical cape. But there's a shot where a, a goon, I'll just call him a goon. They're all like, goons. Yeah. He jumps toward Batman who is facing away from him and plunges through the floor mm -hmm. behind Batman, like a foot behind Batman, <laughs> the floor collapses and then Batman just stays standing on on the the floor and like that in particular struck me as like a panel out of a comic book like i could see that being illustrated mm. you know but in action it just looks so silly it's like wait why didn't batman go through the floor like why, why is he standing on the support i think they ruined that a little bit because batman then turns around and looks yeah whereas if batman is just so smart he knows exactly where to stand on the floor right. yeah which you know that's you know that makes sense for batman that's i think that's a better better gag i guess but uh you know a lot of great action and in, in some ways, but but the car is cool though, right? I mean, all the, all the, you mean yeah. the Matmobile? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was uh, as I was watching this film, uh, I kept thinking I'm having a hard time connecting this with Burton's previous movies, like mm -hmm. uh, visually, emotionally, conceptually. I'm not entirely sure I'm there. And then we got the Batmobile shields, and I was like, okay, there's Tim Burton. Yeah, like there's there's his specific processes and his style of animation that we're seeing his experience here on screen. I think it's the most Burton-y when it's focusing on Bruce Wayne. 
which I think is one of the stronger elements of this film is Michael Keaton's interpretation. Bruce Wayne is kind of a messed up outsider who's all been really damaged on the inside. And, 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 you know, he kind of fakes his way through the world as Bruce Wayne. And, and he's really is this kind of dark creature of the night. That's who he is on the inside as, as well. I think that's really strongly set up in the first half of the movie, like watching this movie and we'll get into this a little bit more later, but I felt like the first half sets up a much stronger, like, you know, these sweeping themes of, of darkness and light and, and uh, the characterization of Wayne is, it's really interesting. And the it all kind of plays out in this, in these grand operatic sets. And I don't really care if the action's a little static. I, I, I think as, as a big costume, well, costume drama of a different kind, I think it works really well. And that, that movie I really like, and it kind of loses me, toward the end i don't know if that was your experience as well no i no. i hate keaton batman really yeah, oh wow. and one no. of the reasons i hate keaton oh, batman no, no. he has <laughs> such a weak chin <laughs> his, his chin his chin does not necessarily bother me what what bothers me is and again i think this is the the superman influence in richard donner superman christopher reeves plays superman as this sort of he's like weirdly detached from it all because he's an alien mm-hmm. and he, he kind of walks around with this like look of ecstatic confusion on his face that's just like I'm surrounded by alien creatures and they're all so soft and fragile and then he meets up with Mario Kidder and it's like let's go for a fly and like stare longingly at each other because we're so confused because we don't what, what could possibly be happening this is new for both of us can, can, can you read my mind I could sing about it which <laughs> practically is good and we get the same thing here with Keaton when when he's first introduced I mean he looks like somebody just poleaxed him mm. and it's, it's supposed to be because he's seeing Vicki Vale who's beautiful but then he talks to other people and he still looks poleaxed he sits at the bat computer and he still looks poleaxed he just he walks through this most of this film until he con- confronts the Joker in Vicky Vale's apartment. He just seems the entire time like he's walking around just like what just happened? And I think that that's an interesting idea for Bruce Wayne. It's just this idea that he's not this like brutally controlled individual who knows who he is and what what he wants and is driven like like Lego Batman only by rage and no other emotions. <laughs> but I, he just he seems so gormless in a way that makes him not even harmless to me, just kind of dopey. I, I think it's kind of, all right. I think in some ways it's kind of unfair to c- compare the casting there because Christopher Reeve was basically born to play Superman. That is true. I mean, he is, maybe it's a generational thing, but but come on, Christopher Reeve is Superman. <laughs> I, and no I have, I have no it. problem with that. Uh, and I have no problem with the characterization. And I think it's a really interesting choice for Bruce Wayne. Mm-hmm. But the the combination, I, and I think everything that you're saying about trying to set up this, this contrast of like really messed up inside, trying to find himself not really sure who he is or who he wants which side of himself himself he wants to be mm-hmm. i think that's all really interesting i don't think keaton pulls it off yeah I, it works for me i really i actually really like keaton's performance uh, uh, i yeah. i'm i think i fall in the middle of you two because i i generally like him as batman despite mm-hmm. what i was saying about like batman being so sluggish like i i think that's the film not not keaton but yeah, not a big fan of his his Bruce Wayne. Um, I agree that it's it's interesting, but there's a gormless was a really good word for it, Tasha. So I'm just gonna steal it. But there's none of the suaveness I associate with Bruce Wayne or the the self assurance, which you know, if we are viewing this as a story of like Bruce Wayne slash Batman figuring out who he is, that makes sense. I just don't know that I enjoyed watching it that much. Hmm. Well, I definitely don't think Bruce Wayne would would sit in the back cave in a turtleneck and jeans. No, yeah. no. I think that was, this is very, very And little Steve Jobs glasses. Yeah. He, he anticipated Steve Jobs' entire look. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Okay, so here's a question. Do you think Batman would go to his current love interest because Alfred told him to and 
stumble for five minutes over the words "I'm Batman." No, that's that's a that's a that's a bad scene. <laughs> that, that's when I talk about the seams showing. This is a movie that was you know being rewritten throughout the whole process. Um, Sam Ham wrote apparently five drafts. And then the similarly rhyming Warren Squarin <laughs> was brought in. And there was another screenwriter, too. And there was a writer's strike, which I'm not sure how that played into it. But From from what I've read, Sam Hamm basically just had to recuse himself yeah. completely after five drafts. And they brought in, like, a string of people to rewrite it. Yeah. And that scene was, was I believe, it was kind of worked out on the set. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Glenn, uh, in his book, um, we should plug Glenn Weldon's book, uh, The Cape Crusade, Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture. Uh, which <laughs> which is Keith a, is holding up to the mic. As yes, if I, you I, can see it through the, the mic. Camera, but, uh, no, it's a, it's a very good book. Uh, uh, it's a great history of, of Batman written in a very fun conversational style and makes an interesting argument around some of the same questions we're asking tonight, which is w- what do we want from our Batman? But anyway, that scene is kind of seems like largely worked out in the set. Glenn describes it as an actor's exercise, which is what it, what it plays like. And uh, that's rough. I found the whole second half of this movie kind of rough for a couple of reasons. The finale is... I think fairly disastrous. Like you my know, balloons. <laughs> I, 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 like, I, I don't mind the balloons. I, I, I actually it's, love that line reading yeah. uh, from, from Jack Nicholson. Yeah, yeah, it's a silly scheme that he has. Why, yeah, but why it are seems they so... the tower? It's kind of like a King Kong thing and a vertigo you know? thing. And a ver- very much a yeah. vertigo thing. Yeah, very much a vertigo thing. But but to what end though? It's just it doesn't make a lot of sense. And as as a I like Batman guys, and I have some. some I, I think you can bend brick Batman in a lot of different directions, and he's still Batman. But Batman doesn't send the Batmobile in to blow up a bunch of bad guys, especially right. in well, a movie that's established that he does not kill bad guys. Like he that goes to great pains to show him using non-lethal weapons. I mean, he, when he throws that guy down the Vertigo Tower, he uh, he pretty much kills that dude. That, yeah, after a certain point, a different, wholly different well, Batman kind of well, comes in. And, and wasn't it pretty controversial at the time that the Batmobile had guns yeah. on it? Yeah, Batman and the, guns. Yeah, and the, yeah. like the Batwing also. Like as, as soon as the it started like unfurling machine guns and he started shooting missiles into a crowd, yeah. I was just like, who is this Batman? Yeah, so what's, what's the story there? Like, it, it it seems like a an odd thing to add to the character yeah. and not necessarily a burden thing to add. No, so, I don't, I, I'm not sure what story is there, yeah. but yeah, I feel like there there are, are after certain points you're not you're not making a Batman movie anymore, and that's yeah. that's one of them when he's actually killing the bad guys. Yeah. There's also just uh, that strange confrontation where he's flying the Batwing directly at the Joker, and the Joker's just standing his ground with machine gun bullets, like tearing up the ground in front of him, and like mm-hmm. pulling out his his comically immense gun. Like that gun is a hilarious reveal, but uh, it's out of a Warner Brothers cartoon. Right. Like it's it's a, it's a Looney Tunes moment, and it's especially a Looney Tunes moment when he shoots the the Roger Rabbit gun mm-hmm. and like shoots a plane out of the sky. I'll follow comic book logic in two different things here. Batman is such a good shot. He doesn't mean to hit the Joker. He's, he's just trying to, <laughs> to, to manipulate him. And the Joker is such a criminal mastermind that he can he can come up with that kind of gun. I, I'll, I'll go that far with that movie. I, the whole thing, I don't want to nitpick. The, the whole thing the works for me yeah. as it's like a completely isolated moment. It's like an, it's a Batman cartoon moment. It could be a Batman the Animated Series moment. It would be something that would play as part of this film in conjunction with some of the other things that happen, it feels weird and out of place. Mm-hmm. But I never fail to laugh when he pulls out that gun. Yeah. And I mean, he keeps pulling out that gun and keeps pulling out that gun <laughs> until it's all out. 
We should talk about Nicholson's Joker. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say we have to talk about the the Joker because, like, we're talking about an aspect of his character that, like, we don't really see in more modern interpretations of the Joker, which is the clown aspect. Like, like this interpretation leans really hard into the clown. Like, he has the the boutonniere and the joy buzzer and the the extendable boxing glove, you know? his balloons. Yeah, in his balloons. Balloon Balloon animals. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's strange that we're getting this sort of, like, darker interpretation of Batman and this connection between Batman and the Joker, a sort of like twisted yin-yang. But then there's this clown kind of interpretation grafted on top of it that allows for these slapsticky moments that feel at odds with that interpretation and with modern interpretations of both characters. It works for me. I, I find it, it's a scary clown. You know? yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's slapstick without any kind of limitations where like people are going to get hurt from this violence, you know? And, and I, I think Nicholson's a lot of fun. I, I think kind of like Christopher Reeve, where you had the perfect Superman, you have this great, amazing performance of the, by Heath Ledger as the Joker uh, yeah. years later. So, you know, just Nicholson doing Nicholson, and I think it's a lot of fun. Wasn't Nicholson, though, pre- considered pretty definitive before Heath Ledger I, came yeah. around? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think there's a lot of, I mean, actually a lot of notes of Nicholson's performance and what Ledger does, too, in some interesting ways. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, like, Ledger talked to Nicholson when he was preparing for the right. role. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was a lot of feeling at the time, like, when the movie was being cast, there was a lot of pressure for Nicholson. There was a lot of feeling that, like, only he could possibly do this movie, <laughs> which is interesting because when Heath Ledger was being cast as the Joker, people were like, oh, the gay cowboy? Like, he's yeah. going to be terrible. Mm-hmm. There was there was so much backlash against him on the web. He was the Michael Keaton uh, of Dark Knight. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there was just, there was a lot of protest against it, and it, it panned out. But I, I mean, I enjoy Nicholson in this role. I... I think that he does a really interesting job and the script does a really interesting job of bringing across that Jack Napier was always like a sociopath sure. and was and a psychopath and uh, like a terrible human being but with a sort of innate canniness and I think that they handle the Joker transformation not only the literal one where he pulls off the bandages sees himself and just kind of like loses it like into the clown moment but also the transformation of that kind of practical psychopath side into the completely impractical psychopath who's willing to embrace what he's physically become by turning it into a persona. I think that's a really interesting aspect of this film. Yeah, I do too. I, I do like the sort of Jack being uh, dangerous. They establish that really nicely early on. I, I do not like the uh, circular origin story at all, <laughs> uh, which was a, a thing that, that Sam Hamm did not want to end the movie, and, and Burton did. And, and when Hamm was gone, it got back into the movie. But. It's weird. I I like exactly half of it. I like I like the moment where where Batman says, you know, uh, you made me first, and mm-hmm. Joker just flips because that is not part of his script. And I, I, Nicholson pulls that moment off so well. <laughs> That's childish. Why are you saying that? <laughs> but yeah, having Jack Napier be the one who killed his parents is it's just one of those lazy there are only three characters in the world kind of uh, script folds right where it just you know you're shrinking the world down to a really pointless level when you do that you killed my parents what huh. <laughs> what are you talking about i made you you made me first Hey, bad brain. I mean, I was a kid when I killed your parents. I mean, I say I made you. You gotta say you made me. And how childish can you get? Huh? You wouldn't hit a guy with glasses on, would you? Huh? So I'm gonna look to the Batman scholar uh, in, in, in the room, or relative Batman scholar, and ask: Is the 
Joker-Batman connection dichotomy thing? Had that been previously established in comics? I think it's unique to this. It is, whole, okay. The whole Joker killing Batman's parents thing. Yeah, that's... Uh... But also just the, the idea that Batman can't exist without the Joker and the Joker can't exist without uh, the Batman. I think that's a theme they've been playing with for, for a, lot yeah. of, a lot of different writers have played with. I, I, I'm not a scholar enough to point you in the... In the uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't exactly. know. Hold Glenn's book up to the mic. Yeah. See if it has anything to say. <laughs> I don't know how far back that goes, but I mean, I'm sure that I was aware of it, like as of The Killing Joke, mm-hmm. it was very mm-hmm. clear that, you know, Batman had inadvertently created him and he was obsessed with Batman. I think that's that's really the most explicit per- depiction of it. But there's also, I mean, in Dark Knight Returns, where uh, the Joker's been comatose for decades, I think. Right. And it's not until Batman comes back that he wakes up. And it's just, it's very clear that so much of his like emotional life is tied to Batman that he literally does not exist in a world where Batman do- doesn't exist either. Sure. And he comes back within seconds of realizing that Batman is out there again, which is also something that uh, Lego Batman plays with in a fun way. But we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. So this was a film that cemented Burton as a director of, of big budget blockbusters um, for all the all the turmoil that went into making it and you know, the cost that went into making it. Make a, it was a huge hit. It made a lot of money. To, kind of touched on it a little bit before, but how do you see this fitting into his career? Like what's coming, what came before and what came after? I mean, the Michael Keaton connection to uh, this. Is, this is a very early example of Tim Burton's. I have worked with an actor, and now I'm obsessed with that actor, <laughs> sure. and I'm going to just take that actor <laughs> to the next movie. You know, he he found Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter, and then he rode them like ponies for, for decades. <laughs> but in this case, it feels like he brought Michael Keaton along from Beetlejuice into a role that is very different and maybe not as suitable. But if you look at Beetlejuice, you kind of see. The Joker, you know, you see another case of this like anarchic, crazy character who does what he wants and lives in this like strange, clownish, emotional universe and is very playful sometimes and very menacing sometimes and attaches onto people emotionally and plays with them for fun. Chaotic above all. Yeah. I feel like it actually took seeing this Batman for me to feel like I understood where Beetlejuice was coming from as a character, you know, because I saw that movie fairly young and I was like, is he a good guy or a bad guy? I don't understand Mm because he wasn't like any character I'd seen before. And then I saw Jack Nicholson's Joker and I was like, okay, that's a character I've seen before. And it it does feel kind of like a a natural segue into Edward Scissorhands, which came the following year, at Mm -hmm. least kind of in terms of the isolated loner, I guess. um, Misfit misfit is a good uh, good word for it. So it definitely slots in very naturally between Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands in, in that way. As far as Batman Returns, I have haven't seen that in years and years. I seem to recall liking it more than Batman, but I think it's even more Burtony and, and less Batmany in some ways. It's yeah. more like this this strange fetishistic uh, portrayal of, of messed up uh, people who find each other in, in the romance between Batman and, and yeah. Catwoman and Penguin is like turned into like this monster. Yeah, Penguin uh, is super underground. grotesque. Yeah. It, you know, like I, I remember kind of having nightmares about Penguin sure. as, as a kid, you know, like to me, Penguin is actually a, a scarier rogue because of that movie than the joker ever right. was because that was like that was the kind of the definitive batman villain to me for for so long yeah he's I, got the I, world's most soulful parents though his parents uh put him in a in a basket like moses and float him down the river because they have to get rid of him and it's uh it's paul rubens and diane salinger just just playing this like sad little soulful moment of, we have to give away our strange penguin child 
yeah. that does feel kind of Burton-y too, though. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, he got a lot more creative license with the second one, and and I'm not sure it was, it wasn't, a, it was a hit, but not as profitable, and that's why it's not around for the third one. But he, uh, it feels like he had kind of a good thing going there for for a while, where Batman and then Edward Scissorhands, which is very much a Tim Burton movie, Batman Returns. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, Ed Wood. Uh, I mean, it was a he was it's very unusual uh, director to settle in into such a nice groove in Hollywood, but he made it work for a while. And I guess you know your mileage may vary, but maybe he still is. I thought he didn't want to be on the franchise after Batman Returns. I my reading on that is pretty old, I think. But I think it was a mutual parting of ways. Yeah. I don't think I don't, Warner Brothers was not very happy with the the excesses of it in some <laughs> ways. Um, so I think they wanted a more family friendly and toyetic uh, <laughs> Batman for the for the next one. Yeah, that is not not necessarily a toyetic film. Uh, Enter Joel Schumacher. <laughs> whose name means toyetic. Joel Schumacher is, I guess, a natural uh, person to pick those up in that he's always been kind of a, a workman for hire with mm-hmm. uh, like a really good eye for, for striking like weirdo images, especially at the time. But uh, like Burton just had so much of a stronger sensibility, I suppose. In some ways, for me, this uh, this movie still feels like a weird anomaly in Tim Burton's career, you know, because he he is so much into this idea of the the wacky outsider who is sometimes very dangerous and is sometimes just like charmingly morbid and strange and eerie and misunderstood. But the the kind of the pattern of the story that he likes to tell doesn't map all that well over like established Batman canon or established Batman character. And at the time, people were so excited because we were back to a dark Batman uh, and a definitive Batman. But it kind of seems like they almost immediately said, yeah, but this also isn't like the Frank Miller Batman that we're super into right now. And very quickly, it just kind of became like the beginning of the dark bat canon, like a a kind of a ground level that we were going to keep working our way into darker and darker dark territory from. Yeah, I think it is and it isn't an anomaly because if you look at his more recent output, Burton is a lot of like sort of attaching himself to Tim Burton-friendly existing properties, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, Planet of the Apes, but especially the things that have like sort of a... Alice in Wonderland. Things that have kind of like a a hot topic appeal, you know, (laughs) where it's like for the budding suburban goth, these are your your favorite movies. Um, I don't mean that as completely as a slag, I like some of those movies. I actually liked Miss Peregrine. I know, I know Tasha and I were talking a little bit before about. Uh, she uh, she said she did she liked it a lot less than I did. Um, I hated it. Would not be too strong. <laughs> yeah, but I hate Alice in Wonderland with a, with a passion of. That's fair. Sons. I I hated that uh, first movie, and I never saw the second never, one. Well, that wasn't him, but I never saw the second one either. But so let's talk Batman. Let's talk Batman. Batman. Uh, wh- where does this where does this rank for you on the scale of uh, Batman's uh, interpretation? that you enjoy keaton specifically or the the film i think this film the burton batman in general yeah. we'll do the other two i like them but uh they're i i think they've been superseded in some ways yeah I'll, I'll admit i have not revisited most batman films i do think the christopher nolan films like loom much larger in my mind obviously they're they're more recent but mm-hmm. um which is kind of weird to say because i feel like my tastes don't usually align with like the grimmer and grittier version i i, I usually tend to go for the more whimsical sure. and, and i I think of the between Burton and Nolan versions, Burton is on the more whimsical side. But this film just feels like a more uncomfortable fit between those two sides, whereas the Nolan film just kind of like goes all in on the darkness. And I guess it, it works better for me. But like I said, I haven't revisited any of these films other than 
for this. I have to admit to having a real sentimental attachment to this movie too. I was 16 when it came out and it's kind of like, I don't even know if this happens anymore, but this movie kind of loomed over the entire summer. You know, mm-hmm. it was, it was just, you know, Batman t-shirts everywhere. It was sort of, there was a, there's a song, uh, I believe called <laughs> bat dance by an artist named Prince that got played on the radio a lot. It was, it was a summer of Batman. So, uh, I am fond of this one. I, I don't, I'm not sure my, maybe my favorite, Interpretation of Batman, what happened without it, which is Batman the Animated Series. That the, uh, oh yeah, yeah, it was Batman yeah. the Animated Series. Is, I, I I thought we were just sticking to the movies. No, I'm just I'm just talking in general, but but it owes a lot. I don't I don't think it would exist without this, but I think it builds on this in some really interesting ways. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm switching my vote my vote to Batman the Animated yeah. Series because I used to watch that after school every day. Right, so good. <laughs> and I'm I'm going to go on to you know stuff like uh, Justice League Unlimited and Young Justice mm-hmm. and uh, the, some of the comics that came after this. Like I, for me, the definitive Batman has never been a film Batman. I, I just mm-hmm. I feel I feel so much like committee think around uh, any version of Batman on film. And the the Dark Knight films are better in terms of trying to trying to be darker without like wallowing in the okay, by the end they're wallowing, but but the first one at least like feels like it's trying to get to something serious and and interesting about the Batman mythos. But there's just there's always this sense of posturing and working really hard for the metaphor for me in Batman films, whereas stuff like the the animated series can just so purely be about story. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, the Batman the animated series, like some of the scripts are still still amazing. They still hold up. They're still really good Batman stories. Uh, the way he would kind of flit in and out of Young Justice, the cartoon series, like I loved that version of him. He's just he's a lot more free in the animated series to not have a, a cheap romantic angle that's tacked on, to not have to have a clean start to finish arc, and to be the Batman that is interesting to me, who is maintaining what he does over a long period of time as opposed to having to be part of this start to finish arc that they mm-hmm. keep cramming into the movies yeah i guess we can talk wider range of batman interpretations in the next half too but yeah i like dark knight rises more than a lot of people but the whole end of it kind of uh, makes it less less of a batman movie in some ways to me uh here's a question is batman interesting or is it his rogues that make him interesting he does have one of the best rogues galleries mm-hmm. like i think that's that's undebated but for me batman is the most interesting superhero just Why? the most interesting because of that conflict because mm-hmm. When you're talking about a Batman story, you're almost inevitably talking about the story of a man who is probably in his 30s or 40s who is defined by something who happened to him when he was nine years old. And he created himself around that moment. And to really be Batman, he he doesn't change. And it's a tragedy that he doesn't change, but mm-hmm. it's also fascinating. He's fascinating because he doesn't have superpowers in a, a world that is packed with heroes and villains, many of which he has to fight who do have superpowers. He is defined by the fact that he's smarter than everybody else. He like thinks more deeply than everybody else. He does the Sherlock Holmes research that gives him the information that makes him function in a world where he can't just like pick up a car and huck it at somebody. I mean, he's kind of aspirational in that he is just a human. He's just managed to make himself the best human. 
that makes him really ripe for uh, like a lot of humor mm. um, and a lot of over the top kind of stuff, and sometimes for like really ridiculous and painful interpretations. But but what I like about him is that he he is so complicated in terms of that that striking the balance between how tormented is he versus is he just somebody who knows who he is and is happy with it. Depending on who's writing him, he can be very very different and still be the same character, still be consistent. Yeah, I think even without the bad guys we know, a lot of what Tasha just said, the sort of sort of uh, person who choices were made for him early in his life and that shaped who he is, but he's kind of fought against that by becoming the best person he can possibly be, and yet still kind of defined by being an unhappy character. Mm-hmm. All that's all that makes for a really compelling character, even if without a rogues gallery. And I even think simplifying it a little bit, like the Batman who's just out there solving crimes like a detective or patrolling the streets and protecting people, that's compelling in its own way as well. Not that I would want to get rid of the rogues gallery, but I think you can write a good Batman story without any of any of the uh, rogues if you if you had to. Okay. Well, you, you guys have sold me on Batman as a concept, I guess. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> going back to Batman, the film that we are discussing, do we get that smartest guy in the room detective thing from this version of, of Batman? Garmless. He- he looks really intense when he's wearing that turtleneck. <laughs> it, it, feels, it feels like Vicky does does a lot of the kind of the heavy lifting here. Yeah, know? I mean he's clearly done some like when he's when he's giving her the file to take the newspaper about mm-hmm. what what's dangerous. He's got like all of these mouthwashes and hairsprays sitting in front of him, <laughs> and he's clearly done the chemical testing and figured out what the combinations are. It's just that that's science, and this movie thinks science is boring mm-hmm. and is more interested in fantasy, so we leave all of that off screen. But like he's clearly done his detective work but it's literally in the background it is literally in the background and it looks like a montage like a, a, a detective montage would be a lot of fun just Maybe. him puzzling over a bottle of you, scope you which set... which prince song would know, we set that say, to? that'll be a good that would probably be a more organic way to work a yeah. prince song into this than, than than they are in the film that's another uh compromise we should talk about is 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 prince which was sort of uh, foisted on on the film, and and Burton was not uh, a fan of having to incorporate print music, print music. But when you when you're Warner Brothers and he's your biggest artist and this is your biggest movie, you want you want some synergy. Uh, what do you think about about Prince uh, music in here? I mean, Prince wears purple. The Joker wears purple. <laughs> it all falls together. I don't like it. I don't like it yeah, at all. Like yeah. it's the the art gallery boombox thing. It, it it almost feels like a like an fu to introduce it that way in this setting where it so clearly doesn't belong as a way for the Joker to mess with people or, or upset people. Sure. You know, like it, it feels almost pointed to <laughs> to use Prince in that context based on uh, what we know about Burton's feelings about including it. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's Prince. The music is good, but it just does not fit the tone or the the setting of this movie at all like it, it re- i think it really positions this movie uh I won't say it dates this movie, <laughs> but it, it it positions it in time in a in a way that I think does not necessarily benefit it on modern viewings. It's tough. Though. I think I think Burton read an interview with him later where he said I, I probably would enjoy this album on its own. Right. Exactly. But, yeah, and it's not it's not Prince's best album, but it's not a bad Prince album. Yeah. Uh, and it was kind of in some ways my way into Prince because I, I bought this album and started working through the Bat catalog. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but um, you mean the Bat catalog. The Bat oh, catalog. Yes, boo. that too. <laughs> Um, so you guys already have kind of like dismissed the balloons sequence, but I, I mean, I actually kind of like the no, I don't, oh. no, I don't mind the balloon sequence. I just feel like that it's part of it's part of a, a, a weaker part of the film, but that's yeah. that, that's but nice. I mean, that, it's really nicely staged. That whole parade where he 
is where trust is playing and he's setting up that crowd by throwing money and gathering in all these people who he's immediately going to poison. Like I can see not feeling that that like jibes with the tone of the movie. But I liked that sequence Mm -hmm. because it actually seemed like something the Joker would do to Mm -hmm. me. And on top of all that, it feels like something the Heath Ledger Joker would do Mm -hmm. because it's this bizarre capitalist moment of, you know, you idiots will do anything for money, including at like at the end where he's just poisoned a whole bunch of people. Batman's been shooting up the crowd and there are still people climbing all over his float trying to get at the money. Yeah. And there's just that feeling there that, you know, people are idiots and it it really (laughs) like what the Joker does and what Batman does, there's kind of a push-pull there that's like, is everybody in the city going to die from being dumb? Or is Batman <laughs> going to rescue them all from themselves? The prince definitely works better there. And I will say the the balloons, which again, <laughs> I just really like that line reading is the reason I brought it up. But <laughs> but I, the design of those balloons, it does that's Burton. Like you see, mm. you really see Burton in that parade and just the design and construction of that parade. What's your favorite? I like the big baby. Yeah, the uh, creepy baby, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> it is a very unsettling baby. But it, it, I mean, to me, the music works there. Yeah. Final thoughts? Maybe Tasha, maybe you have a favorite character we haven't gotten to yet. I don't know if he's a favorite character, but I, I am repeatedly tickled by the presence of uh, Tracy Walter as Bob the Goon. Uh, it's so out of character for the Joker to have this like second in command who's completely loyal to him, who's just kind of standing by with whatever mm-hmm. he needs right until the moment when he gets ticked off. But and there's just something so bizarre about like I'm a crazy clown with uh, a ton of makeup slathered on my face, singing and dancing. Here's this like unshaven Skid Row bum hanging out next <laughs> to me, handing me things. Uh. Tracy Walter is fun in this movie. I'll just say that the the Joker Rictus grin is remains unsung. Yes. and scary yeah. and that is some some really good makeup and the way it is kind of utilized across the film and on characters mostly dead characters other than joker is effective the newscaster scene yeah is really great and that's that's very burtony too yeah. especially when they the cut the later scene where they have no makeup on that, no that, yeah. that that specifically that uh, is a completely unremarked upon joke that is terrific yep yeah, yeah that's the thing <laughs> this movie I, I mean we've we've certainly uh pointed out a flaw or two but it's a movie i could watch right now you know it's 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 uh it's, i find it very entertaining and, and much to recommend it and despite some some problems and it's you know egregious abandonment of uh well it's not its egregious abandonment. The series egregious abandonment of Billy D. Williams. Yes. Who really deserves better. But well, and, and he gets his due in Lego Batman. Lego Batman movie, which <laughs> yep. we'll get to in part two. So well, let's let's wind this up for now and uh, we'll be right back with some listener feedback on our last episode. In our last episode, we looked at two movies that, in the words of our absent co-host Scott Tobias, bookended the Clinton era, The War Room and Wiener. One topic we raised regarding Wiener was that it began as one sort of documentary and became something else. Then we kind of froze in a moment when we tried to think of other examples, but (laughs) happily some of our listeners picked up our slack. Uh, Genevieve, can you share one example? Certainly. Timothy writes, When you put out the call asking for documentaries that became something else when they were being filmed, I immediately went to 2013's Mistaken for Strangers. Starring the New York indie rock band The National, lead singer Matt Berninger invites his brother Tom, who's nine years his junior, on the tour. Tom, who is a budding horror movie, quote, filmmaker, brings his camera with him and starts capturing the on-tour experience. As you watch the film, you see all the typical rock doc tropes, band members being interviewed, backstage antics, and concert footage. What the film actually becomes is a look at Tom and Matt's relationship. Tom struggled to make something of himself and to step out from his older brother's shadow. 
uh, I haven't seen this film, but I believe you have, Keith. Yeah, it's a good movie. It, it's uh, it's really sweet, and it's kind of like I, I, I want to I be careful because it's no, nowhere near the levels of, of messed upness. Uh, but <laughs> it's kind of like Crumb in a way, where where these are two creative people from the same family, and one's found a, a much easier in, in his own way, well, easier than easier than Crumb, no matter what. But mm-hmm. uh, found an easier way to to apply his passions into the world than than the other. You know, Tom is. A uh, very sweet, low ambition guy who's never quite gotten it together. Whereas Matt is highly successful, and, and it involves him following him around, and it's kind of getting in the way of 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 it. And in the end, it becomes about like it's like Timothy says, it becomes about their relationship and and them kind of getting it together. And and you know, in in a way, the the, the actual completion of the film is is the end of of, of Tom's arc. It he actually has made something uh, worthwhile. Um, and it's a yeah, it's a good movie. Like I said, we kind of froze in the moment, but someone else pointed us toward. There's a whole. Uh, there's a publication called the AV Club. Are you familiar uh, with it? I've heard of it? They did. A, they did a, a list, which they call an inventory, uh, about, about. I think I read a good book with that title. Once. <laughs> yeah, uh, a nice job picking out a lot of a lot of movies that began as one thing as another, including Errol Morris's Vernon, Florida, which became about this town in Florida, which was, had the highest rate of insurance fraud in the in, in the country, or, or some some other sort of uh, not so glorious claim to fame, and it basically just kind of changed into Morris sitting around talking to lots of different Floridians about their life. And it's a, it's a wonderful movie, uh, not the movie he set out to make. And there are other, there are other examples as well. Yeah. The, the name of that inventory is called change of plan, 15 documentaries that switch course during filming. It's from 2014. So after our tenure at the AV club, but they put together a really good list, including uh, some things that our listeners suggested to us that I think we all kind of collectively slapped our heads for not thinking of like capturing the Freedmen's and give me shelter and lost in the macho, which if I'd been there, I think would have been uh, my, my big suggestion. Uh, the film uh, made by a couple of documentarians that thought they were going to do a behind the scenes. Uh, how did it get made on Terry Gilliam's uh, the man who killed Don Quixote and and instead ended up with a documentary about how he didn't make that film because everything fell apart on roughly day two. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a great documentary, but but you can almost feel Terry Gilliam's horror at, the, at having cameramen there documenting the the collapse of his film project. Uh, but it, it ends up being a really fascinating story. But he's really making it now, Tasha. Uh-huh. He's really making it now. Where are uh, those documentarians <laughs> and are they standing next to him right now mm. looking over his shoulder? Uh, so we got another example from a different listener. Uh, Tasha, do you want to share that letter? Yeah, absolutely. Taylor writes, you were soliciting listeners for great examples of documentaries that start off as one thing and the story develops into something completely different. The one I was thinking of all through Wiener and immediately thought of as a great next picture show pairing was The Queen of Versailles. In addition to the filmmaker going into a story initially to find one thing and having it be completely derailed by the hubris of the husband slash father, both films strike the same balance of cringiness and tragedy as we watch as a family's life and a couple's marriage crumble around them, with the subjects never thinking to shoo the camera people away at their darkest moments. Man, this was the example when it came in where I just like banged my head on the desk for not <laughs> yeah. thinking of because I love Queen of Versailles and it's such a good example of, of this phenomenon. And Taylor's right, it would be kind of a really good pairing with Wiener as far as the the theme of hubris and mm. uh, self-awareness or lack thereof. So It's hard to get anything in the moment, Scott. So it's, you're out there listening, you think it's easy, but it's not. It's like it's like being on Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. That Pat Sajak is just staring you down, man. Sure. But yeah, Queen of Versailles is a really good example. And it's also a really good pairing with Wiener just in the sense that both of them have that kind of 
I feel bad for them, but I don't feel bad for them, right. but I sympathize with them, but they brought this on themselves. It's like this really complicated circle of of fault and sympathy and complete lack of sympathy. And this is cinematic comeuppance. Oh, but they're real people. And both of those films made me wonder how many half-made documentaries are out there where the subjects got to that turning point and then were just like, go away, filmmakers, mm. and they never got any more footage. Well, as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 and send those. We like those. We don't get enough of them. Or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll bring in a very different sort of Batman movie. Or is it? The Lego Batman movie. Look for that later this week. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And follow us on Twitter at at nextpicturepod. So you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be lurking in our respective bat caves, uh, hovering over our computers wearing turtlenecks. <laughs> go, go, go with a smile. And drawing from a script by Sam Hamm and Warren Scarin, he <laughs> I know. <laughs> and drawing from a script by Sam Hamm and Warren Scarin, he and Keaton delivered. Okay, <laughs> that time you made names. it round rhyme even more, and it was even funnier. They're just names. All right. Maybe you could swap it up. Maybe it could be Sam Scarin and Warren Hamm. <laughs> if, uh, would it were so simple? All right. Um, and drawing from a script by Samuel Hardy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they sound like Batman, but like Batman villains to be. Like yeah. Sam Hamm is actually the like the the Incredible Pig Man, yeah. and Warren Scarn is like the Scarmeister. <laughs> All right, nobody left.